0: strong
1: voices it's not just about one state it's not just about one community it's about all of our communities the issues that face indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political
2: order
0: i am here and now and i speak my
2: language i practice my cultural essence of me what we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logic are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change
3: it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere.
0: What the
2: system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people.
3: A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice.
4: Hello, good morning and welcome to another episode of Strong Voices. We're coming to you, of course, from the Calm Radio Studios here on our Country in the Red Centre and broadcasting right across Australia on uh, Vast Channel 911. It's 100.5 on FM here in Inbantua, Alice Springs. We're also as well coming to you, uh, perhaps even overseas via the Calm website at uh, www.kama.com.au. Uh, Today is Tuesday. It's the 8th of uh, October 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. Great to have your company once again. We're coming up on the show today in a significant move. The uh, Manchester Museum in England will be returning uh, more than 40 secret, uh, sacred and ceremonial objects to Aboriginal groups in Central Australia, Western Australia and Queensland. Uh, The return comes off the back of months of work from IATSIS, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, uh, as part of their Return of Cultural Heritage project. We're going to be hearing from the CEO of IATSIS, who's going to be discussing a bit about about how that process worked, which sort of the Aboriginal groups that are involved, and some of the challenges that are still faced uh, within that space of getting artefacts returned to the mob here in Australia. We're as well going to be heading to Victoria uh, to discuss the Jarabar Wurrung embassy who have uh, welcomed an agreement with state government to protect sacred birthing trees without uh, works being halted until a decision can be made on a uh, duplication highway upgrade. We're as well, of course, going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well here on Strong Voices. But before all of that, we are going to go to a track and then we'll be right back with our first story.
5: Free. Hey, this is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio.
4: In Victoria, the Joabwurrung Embassy have welcomed an agreement with the state government to protect sacred birthing trees, with works uh, halted until a decision can be made on an alternative route that has been proposed by the Joabwurrung Embassy for the Victorian highway upgrade. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with uh, senior Joabwurrung woman Marjorie Thorpe about the site of the sacred trees and the important role they play for her people.
2: This has um, been going on for almost two years, the, um, the action that we have been involved in, in as Japarung peoples. Um, this is a part of the Western Highway that is going from Melbourne to Adelaide. And so obviously this has been in, plans have been in place for quite a while. Um, we, we became involved after um, becoming aware that these trees were actually um, at risk of being um, destroyed. And um, no one asked us as Japarung peoples of you know, what we thought should, or were we necessarily involved as a group in the decision-making in relation to those trees. And we, we know, I mean, everyone knows that there, were, there are two Aboriginal bodies, Indigenous bodies that are involved in this decision-making process unfortunately, um, there have been a lot of mistakes made and um, and um, people have failed to inform the the rightful people um, who belong to that country about what they um, should do about the situation.
3: And do you believe that there were adequate uh, you know cultural heritage surveys done on the sites?
2: Um, not initially. I know that it's been um, surveys done in this area for the last 40 to 50 years and um, you know, in recent times in the in the late 80s where um, you know, this is a very important area, this whole western district area and if you don't know the location for your listeners this is in the area where um, you know, it's neighbours with Gunditjmara country um, where we've got Bajabim which has just been listed World Heritage um, we have, you um, Areas, landscapes, their cultural landscapes that have been now identified as um, very significant, um, you know, from all, all, you know, from any um, um, measure, I guess. So this is in the in the same vicinity um, as those areas, and so some of the reports that go back to the 80s that I've read. You know, none of this has come up and we're extremely concerned and plus the knowledge that that we have has not been asked for either. So I think it shows flaws in the cultural heritage legislation in this state and it also shows flaws in the native title um, legislation. Um, This area is also under native title claim and um, the sign-offs have been done under cultural heritage laws in the state.
3: You know, the, the area is uh, a are woman's site and, you know, being a man, I, I don't want to, um, you know, talk too much about it. But for those people that may not know, like, how, how important is this area for your mob?
2: Some of these trees have been identified to be hundreds of years old and they've been culturally modified. Um, many of these trees are culturally modified that show a technology and a, and a life. Um, of our people um, before white contact that you're never going to see again these places have been eradicated and erased from our landscape over the many years from whatever reasons mining and logging usually um, there is a chance to um, you know to save some of these landscapes not only for our people but for everybody what, if these trees are taken out um, no one will ever see the likes of that again I mean that's in terms of the you know the tangible you know, the qualities, but we're talking about intangible qualities here too. This is our um, our birthing sites, this is a, a, a landscape that we lived in and survived in over you know hundreds of thousands of years. Why should it be destroyed when um, an alternative can be found in this case?
3: Yes, and and talking along those lines, what kind of alternative uh, has been offered up?
2: Well, we know that um, there's not the, the proposed site is um, you know more expensive. It has a bigger footprint on the environment, um, and there are alternatives which takes in an easement that's already had um, you know trees taken out over many years. It's alongside a railway track. There are you know, and I think taken into account the alternatives. Um, you know, I think they haven't been taken into into consideration enough.
3: And uh, and so, looking at going into to court uh, in November, what kind of things uh, are you hoping um, can be agreed upon?
2: What we'd like to we'd like to come to some agreement where, um, you know, we know that the road needs to go through. No one's arguing about it not. Um, it's in a you know. But there needs to be consideration of how some of the roadworks are impacting on, you know, critical, important landscapes. Not only cultural landscapes like our case, but environmental landscapes as well. You know, we've got to start considering what landscapes we have left in this country and protect it for all sorts of reasons. We're saying we need to protect this particular landscape because it in- incorporates our sites of significance. the are dreaming sites. This is major waterways of the eel dreaming of the Western District um, peoples which is the Gundishamara, the Japurung the Kirae So they're destroying very important sites in our case as well. We have agreed in the Federal Court to um, major roads preparing for a small part of, um, to go ahead with works and we've done that in good faith and we hope that the Victorian state government, um, you know, takes that on board and, um, and uh, considers that when they make their decisions. We don't want to see that for anybody, um, these for any community, and we've got a lot of um, non-Indigenous um, community people in the area who have supported us along the way. People don't want to see these kind of landscapes destroyed. No-one wants to see that happen, and there should be... Um, a, a, an, an alternative that is less invasive and has a, um, a less, you know, footprint on, this, on the environment, and protects our sites. You know, we we should be able to do this as, um, you know, Indigenous peoples in our case, with the um, with our local communities in the in, in the area, and I think that that's what you know that's what's got us so far today Anyway, is that working together and and um, finding a way. We haven't done this alone. There's been a lot of um, non-Indigenous support for us to do this.
3: Yeah, especially when it's, um, you know, trees and and sites that are older than any of us.
2: That's right. And this is not just for our area down here. This needs to be taken seriously everywhere in this country.
3: Do do you think that there is, like, you know, adequate sort of um, cultural and environmental surveys elsewhere in the country as well or do you like you said you know want it to be done all over the country
2: well where there are we've had um those environmental cultural and environmental um surveys done and um that information hasn't um we don't believe the minister has had the opportunity to um to know that information
3: and and do you think you know Those recommendations and and surveys should be followed.
2: Absolutely. And they should be um, negotiated when there's, you know, the whole thing, mediated. Whatever needs to be done should be done. And and first and foremost, we need to protect that landscape. Everybody, everywhere in this country. doesn't matter who you are.
3: On that note, Marjorie Thorpe, thanks very much for joining me here on Karma Radio.
2: Thank you, Damien.
4: That was senior Draburong woman, uh, Marjorie Thorpe there, speaking with Akama's Damien Williams. We're going to be hearing soon from uh, the CEO of IATSIS, uh, Craig Ritchie, who's going to be discussing the return of uh, sacred materials to traditional custodians uh, here in Australia very soon. But before then, we're going to go to track and then we'll be right back
2: you stationing.
4: yeah so listening to strong voices here on calm radio we were heading into our next story now. In a significant move, the Manchester Museum in England will be returning forty three secret sacred and ceremonial objects to traditional custodians in central Australia, Western Australia and Queensland. The return comes following uh, 10 months of work from IATSIS, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, as part of their Return of Cultural Heritage project, which they're heading up. I uh, spoke with IATSIS CEO, Craig Ritchie, who described the announcement as exciting and significant.
1: Look, this is a really exciting development. It's, if not the first, one of the first times that an overseas institution has returned significant cultural material in an unconditional way and look we're really excited about this we've been working hard the return of cultural heritage team at IATSIS has been working really hard with overseas institutions over the last 10 months uh, to negotiate uh, in partnership with the traditional owners uh, the return of these materials and it's a really exciting uh, development we couldn't be more pleased to be
4: honest. When you say unconditional, can you just elaborate a bit on that in terms of what what some of those conditions can potentially be?
1: Well, sometimes uh, institutions will return material on um, sort of like a long-term loan, and part of the conditions are on that are generally that those materials have to be housed in an appropriate institution. And so they can impose, seek to impose certain conditions on um, where items go. Uh, In this case, we've worked hard, uh, as I say, with the traditional owners to make sure that uh, the returned items will go back to country, will go back into the care and the custodianship of uh, the traditional owners, and they'll be the ones making decisions about where they're stored and where they're housed in a long-term kind of way. The really exciting part about this, though, is that these are items, particularly the ceremonial and the the secret sacred items. These are items that are going to be used for the purpose for which they were made in ceremony and in traditional practices that are really important to these communities. So uh, this is not just about uh, building the collections of Australian cultural institutions. It's about supporting the cultural resurgence of these communities where these items originally
4: came from. And I understand that there are a few different groups here that these uh, artefacts are, are coming from. Can you name some of those groups? The Manchester items are coming from
1: uh, Aranda people in Central Australia, your part of the world, uh, Gungalita Garawa people up in the Gulf of Carpentaria, and uh, normal people from the Pilbara, and some Yaru uh, and Yaru items for, uh, around the, for Yaru people in Broome. So it's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty broad spread, uh, the Territory WA in Queensland. And um, all of those groups are, are, are really excited about these returns.
4: Can you walk us through that, that process of, of how a return would actually happen? Is that a process where the traditional owners go, go to a group like like IATSIS and then you sort of you know help uh, initiate that process on their behalf how, how does that actually work?
1: It goes a bit to the history of this project. so this, the, the funding for this project was made available to IATSIS, uh very specifically because we had argued that as part of uh, anything that takes place in 2020, uh, marking the anniversary of uh, Cook's arrival on the East Coast, took account of the fact that that event began a process whereby our cultural material was taken offshore. In fact, the very first thing that Cook and his men did when they set foot on uh, the shores at Botany Bay was to shoot Aboriginal people, and to take spears and shields, and of course, that's been uh, a very prominent item of discussion. But it began a process of removal of our of material culture from this from this country to overseas institutions. So we uh, sought uh, some funding to to support a process whereby that material was starting to come home, where it belongs. And uh, so we, uh, having identified. Uh, overseas institutions that held Australian Indigenous uh, cultural material and and those that were interested and open to discussions about its return, we then talked to the local community where these items came from to seek their consent. Uh, We have a very strong principle, ask first, so we we wouldn't assume uh, anything about uh, the return of those materials until we had talked to the traditional owners and gotten their consent to engage in negotiations with the overseas institutions on behalf of those communities. And in the cases where these materials have come home, uh, we've got explicit, uh, if you like, endorsement or support from the traditional owners to uh, deal with the overseas institutions on their behalf. Now, what will happen in the places where we've got material coming back from. So Manchester's the most recent, and uh, about a month ago we had a a decision from the Illinois State Museum in the United States to return some material. In both of those cases, uh, we'll be supporting uh, representatives uh, from those traditional owner groups to go over to the United States in the case of Illinois and to the United Kingdom in the case of Manchester to take delivery of those items on behalf of their communities from those institutions and to supervise uh, everything that needs doing to make sure that those items can be appropriately, respectfully returned to Australia. Um, there's a bit of logistics that's going on in dealing with customs and quarantine and all of those kind of things. And we've been, uh, uh, again, on behalf of those communities, dealing with those parts of government that need to be dealt with. That's all taken care of and in line now. But the really critical thing is that this is about those communities taking delivery, if you like in some form of handover ceremonies that that they'll have a a critical part in designing of their material that's been offshore for uh many many years now uh so it's been a close negotiation on our part of uh, you know as as a Commonwealth institution to other institutions overseas but uh, absolutely in partnership and at the behest of the traditional owner groups and the places where these artifacts come from
4: this process and the returning of the objects and stuff like that is is there like a general time frame of how long that sort of stuff takes i know you were saying there's you know obviously things you have to clear with like customs and obviously you know getting the the mob over there as well is there any sort of general time frames of how long it takes to sort of get some of these artifacts back
1: uh, well, Kyle, it's a, it's how long's a piece of string, really? This this is uh, uh, this project began about a year or so ago. This is ten months worth of negotiation with these particular institutions. It's a pilot. That's the other thing that needs to be said. And so, where we at IAPSIS are sort of really strongly advocating that the government consider resourcing an ongoing program for the return of cultural heritage material uh, in the same way as the government. Uh, supports and funds a repatriation program for ancestral remains that are held overseas. There's certainly the demand, there's certainly the appetite for it, and it's a, it, it's shown us that it's a worthwhile thing. Uh, some institutions, of course, will be harder to crack as time goes on, but you've got to be in there and we've got to be talking to them. What we've learned from this project, of course, is that there is an immense willingness. So if there's willingness on both sides and goodwill... I think 10 months is a pretty speedy process, but yeah, it, 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 it really depends on uh, the details about specific items and what we know about where they come from and the engagement of the local community.
4: Is it sometimes difficult to be able to track those lines back to, to which group or, or a particular area and things like that? What, what are some of the challenges that we've seen Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face when, when trying to get objects like these returned?
1: Well, provenance is a real challenge in lots of cases. so. Uh, In these cases, it's very clear. We've got a fairly clear uh, sort of documentary record that shows where these items come from, so we're we're clear on that in the cases of these. But sometimes, of course, in the past, academics who may have acquired some artefacts as an incidental part of the research they were doing or government collectors or... whatever process took place by which these places got these things, didn't always keep accurate records. And so in some cases, overseas institutions will have a bunch of material that they know is clearly Australian, uh, Australian Indigenous, or they may say Australian Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. But that's about it. So in those cases, some further work is required by experts here who will be able to identify which particular part um, of the country, which particular mob these items came from. So to give you an example, we may have institutions, and I think we do have institutions that have items that are categorised as coming from Central Australia. So as you will know, Central Australia includes uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, different uh, Indigenous nations, and all of them will have a different cultural, if you like, designs or that their material will be different. And so we will need to engage with experts from that part of the country to work out whether it's a, uh, the item is an Aranda item or it might be a Walpree one or Lurica or So in some cases, it's a lack of information about that, that clearly states where the item is from that can be a real hindrance. It's not impossible because we do have uh, experts in this field, in this country, the real challenge is to kind of get some of those items back into the country where that kind of research can be done in an appropriate way. So if there are a bunch of uh, items that are secret-sacred, they may be about men's business, then in which case it would be utterly inappropriate for a female academic or a female researcher or community expert to engage in the process of determining where they're from. And the converse would be true in the case of items that are uh, about women's business. So lack of clear information is a real problem. The other issue is, I've got to say, sometimes the unwillingness of overseas institutions to consider returns. And and we've used the word return deliberately because we didn't want to scare the horses, so to speak. Now, I've got to say, in the just almost 200 institutions that we have uh, contacted in relation to this project, um, I think it's something in the order of 70 to 80% of those have expressed a willingness... Well, first of all, they've provided us with information about the Aboriginal uh, uh, Australian items they hold in their collection and the majority of those have expressed a willingness to be in discussion and, and in the process of talking about returning those materials.
4: Do you think that shows, you know, the, the, the fact that we had an, a number of institutions uh, willing to want to return artefacts shows that there is that growing understanding now about the, the cultural and historical significance of some of these items?
1: Yeah, I do. I think I think it's a good sign, and the fact that we got such an overwhelming response from overseas institutions to the project is a sign, at least, that in those institutions and more broadly internationally, there's a, a recognition that these are not just artifacts; they're important parts of the cultural life of communities, and and therefore it's important that they're back with those communities and I think the other thing is there is around the world a recognition that there are times when some of these items have not been obtained in an ethical way and it's the right thing to do quite apart from the cultural value it is the right thing to do for these items to come back home where they belong and that's important uh, to recognise. The qualifier for that is what does the community want where these items come from and in some cases, the community will say, bring them home. In some cases, communities may say, look, we want our civilization to be represented alongside the Greeks and the Romans um, and the Europeans because our civilization is, um, uh, is equal, uh, if you like, to those. Um, but again, uh, that's entirely a matter for the local mob to determine.
4: Yeah. And sorry, just quickly as well, in terms of the impact, can you just speak to, you know, the impact of having these items returned and, and you know, the the people being able to go over there and, and bring it back on country, bring it back to the mob? What, what, what impact does that have on people and communities?
1: I think there are two particular impacts. One, there's the sort of, if you like, uh, and I don't want to make this sound lesser, the symbolic value of the recognition that sits behind, this is your material. Uh, we're respecting your culture, we're honouring you and we're giving it back to you because it's yours. So there's something about how uh, that positions that community as the rightful owners. But as I said before, in some cases, um, this material is going to be used in uh, ceremonial practices as part of law time. And so this will have very, very real impacts on the lives of community members uh, quite apart from... Uh, the symbolic value of it—it'll actually be these are these are going to be used, so not not sit uh, in a in a glass cabinet somewhere forever, so people can have a look at it, um, uh, because in many cases they won't be able to. But these will be used as they were intended to be used, and so that the the, the if you like the the benefit to the community in uh, fostering that cultural resurgence that's going on all around the place. Uh, at the moment, is, is it's really hard to describe and it's hard to estimate. The feedback we've got from the communities the, where the items are coming back to is amazing, and you know, just the impact, the, if you like, the joy that this has created in those communities, it makes it worthwhile.
4: That was IATS' CEO Craig Ritchie there. We're going to go to a break now and then we'll be right back with the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country.
1: G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio.
4: That's right, you are listening to Strong Voices. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. Uh, which is now time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country here on Strong Voices. Very happy to say that I'm joined by Karma's Damien Williams. Good morning,
3: Damien. Good morning, Carl, and good morning to all our listeners.
4: Well, I understand you have a couple of stories for us this morning. Let's start with the first one. I understand it's regards to some uh, new accommodation for Aboriginal students.
3: Yes, um, this story um, from the Mirage News, is talking, says that the Liberal government has today unveiled um, first of its kind of accommodation that will allow Aboriginal post secondary students from remote and regional areas in South Australia to live and study in the city. The Ticker Tikka Turka, um, Ghana for Stay and Learn, is a purpose built 20 bed apartment style student accommodation in Gilbert Street in Adelaide. The uh, building was built in partnership with the state and federal government governments and coordinated by the SA Housing Authority, with Premier Steve Marshall and Minister for Human Resources Michelle Lensink, officially opening opened the new student accommodation um, enabled by a 1.8.4 million dollar provided under the federal government. National Partnership Agreement on Remote Indigenous Housing. So, um, yeah, that's going to give a chance for a lot of those um, students from across all of South Australia to go and uh, do some study and live in the city in Adelaide, which is pretty awesome.
4: Yeah, and I think providing that extra bit of support, and I think, in an environment that's sort of tailored to the mob, I think, is, is important, as you know, yeah. Like you're saying, mob from right across you know, centralist, uh, central Australia, South Australia, wanting to go there. Uh, of course, you know, you know, people from remote communities and things like that. Mm. You know,
3: well, it does reach up into the centre as well. Mm. You know, going up into the APY lands, um, which is on that tri-state border um, from South Australia, NT, and Western Australia. So, um, I wonder if uh, that will allow some of the other, you know. Um, Remote, remote uh, students from just surrounding areas in the APY lands as well to be able yeah. to go down there as well.
4: That would be interesting to know mm. as well. Uh, what's your next story that you have for us, Domo?
3: Yes, um, the a senior constable Alphonsus Shields has been named as the ANZ Zogs, which is the ANZAC uh, Australia New Zealand School of Government's inaugural Indigenous Church Hill Fellowship recipient. Um, Shields is a general duties policeman in the Northern Territory. Um, poli- in the Northern Territory's police, police Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Development Unit, and is a member of the Senior Aboriginal Reference Group for the NT Government as well. With West Australian Aboriginal uh, Nakan Nakina, Torres Strait Islander, and Malaysian heritage as well. Shields is a passionate Aboriginal, uh, passionate about promoting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander employees in the workforce and engaging with youth. So, um, yeah, big congratulations to uh, um, Senior Constable Shields on um, receiving this fellowship.
4: Yeah, definitely congratulations in order and always good to, you know... In those sort of situations had have that recognition and that support you know it goes to i think a long way in terms of when people are doing a lot of work sometimes that work can go sort of unrecognized or you know sometimes you can be sort of plugging along and wondering you know what sort of difference you're making so i think that sort of mm. stuff does does help
3: and i mean you know the relationship between police and aboriginal people haven't been very hasn't been great um you know for a long time and but uh, hopefully this kind of thing will sort of break down those barriers as well to to get the aboriginal people and police sort of more understanding of each other and and um and this is this goes across to new zealand as well so multiple police yeah. officers and and the like you know across new zealand and australia so yeah it's good
4: Well, on that note, Damien, thank you for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you, Carl. We're going to go to a break now, and then we'll be right back with our final story.
0: What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on
3: Karma Radio. (laughs)
4: Yes, you are listening Strong Voices. We're going to be heading into our final story of the show now. Uh, while it can be exceedingly difficult for new Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists to break into the music scene, new funding for the CBAA's uh, AMRAP program could help change that. The CBAA is partnering with uh, First Nations Media to select several artists to be played over the Community Radio Network in an effort to boost their careers, especially for those living in remote or rural areas. The wise Michaela Savage is speaking with uh, Andrew Godori, uh, CBAA AMRAP manager.
5: This is Nagaraku Jainama by award-winning Milyakbara woman Emily Waramara, whose soothing voice can be heard on several mainstream radio stations. But this is a rare success story for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists, especially if they live in rural or remote areas. But that could soon change, as the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia has received funding from the Australian Council for the Arts and are partnering with First Nations Media Australia on a new initiative to help Indigenous artists break into the new scene on Community Radio. I asked Andrew Kadori, CBAA AMRAP Manager, about their plans for the funding.
0: So we've been lucky enough to receive funding from the Australia Council for an initiative which represents a partnership between the CBAA, the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia, and First Nations First Nations Media Australia, which are the peak body representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in media. And essentially, this came about from an identifying of a very low percentage of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders getting airplay across community radio airways, which should be really a natural home for those artists to be heard and be recognised by a very active and eager listenership across the network. So we decided to form this partnership uh, whereby First Nations Media Australia will use their YouTube platform, which is the major content platform for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander music. And uh, we're going to um, have First Nations Media Australia curate a selection panel quarterly of eminent First Nations individuals and they will select uh, artists for compilations which will be available on the AMRAP website, AMRAP being the Australian Music Radio Airplay Project, which is a project that delivers music to community radio across Australia. So that music will be eventually made available and more easily accessible to community radio broadcasters to either download or have a CD copy and play on their radio shows.
5: Yeah, so like you said, a series of music compilations are going to be curated by... Is it Indigitube? Is that right? That's correct. And so they're going to be distributed Australia-wide. How do you choose from so many talented artists? What's the curation process like? Well,
0: actually, the decision-making process is going to sit with an independent selection panel of First Nations individuals, and this is part of the role of First Nations Media Australia will be uh, undertaking. So all of the creativity and decision-making in this project will be resting with First Nations Media Australia and First Nations individuals. The Community Broadcasting Association of Australia's involvement is through the AMRAP site, which is already uh, a a two-decade-running project which acts as a conduit between musicians and community radio broadcasters So we'll be working as a delivery system for the music that gets chosen to be a part of these compilations.
5: AMRAP, as you said, has been around for about 20 years now. Over that time, how many Aussie musicians do you think have been heard over the community radio airwaves because of the AMRAP project?
0: Uh, Quite a lot, quite a percentage, but it's still, relatively speaking, across the board a very low percentage. So, as I mentioned earlier, community radio is a a really, really strong home for representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. Um, A lot of them don't make it onto mainstream radio. So, essentially, um, community radio is is the place for it to be, but there are barriers um, of access. There are a lot of artists that, that do struggle with getting their music across to community radio, and so we're here to help that process along.
5: And the project is set to involve more regional and remote artists. Why have you made sure that there's a focus on widening that diversity and range of music that's played?
0: Because um, regional and remote artists do actually struggle, as I mentioned, with barriers of access, um, getting their music across um, to community radio broadcasters. So if, if we can be a part of an infrastructure that helps them along um makes them part of that ecosystem that, um, AMRAP is involved with in getting that music to community broadcasters, then, um, that's a, a really necessary area that we need to touch upon and be a part of.
5: Yeah, and what are those barriers that you're mentioning? Uh, just, um,
0: technology is, is, um, really, um, a, a great barrier for a, a lot of, um, artists to get involved. So we're going to be looking at ways to, to reduce the barriers that, a uh, lack of technology can create for artists in remote and regional areas. And uh, I think just also awareness is, is another big factor as well um, that, that, that just um, basically stops that music getting across to us. So we're just basically looking to, to reduce barriers where possible. I think um, those sort of things just need to be addressed. And a project like this is a concerted, energetic project that will hopefully look to reduce some of those problems.
5: Yeah, so then it, that must mean that AMRAP is a very important project for Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander artists then.
0: We certainly like to think so. Um, we, we think that um, community radio is really uh, just an amazing platform to share a lot of music that doesn't necessarily fit into mainstream radio format. And, uh, you know, AMRAP has been really vital in getting lots and lots of different artists from all sorts of backgrounds and all parts of Australian society or culture onto the airwaves being heard and sharing their songs and sharing their stories. So to that end, absolutely, I mean, that's a really big part of, of, of that kind of representation, I think.
5: And again, that song is by Emily Waramara.
4: Many thanks to The Wise, uh, Michaela Savage, for filing that report. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this uh, Tuesday morning. Thank you for tuning in and thanks to all our special guests who joined us throughout the program. We'll, of course, be back the same time tomorrow on Wednesday from 11 till 12. Uh, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day.